Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are welcoming some of the new voices of the new class of 2022. I'd like to uh, say hello to Torben Halbe, joining us uh, from Germany. Torben, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Sure, thanks. Uh, well, I'm a biologist, but I'm now active in the political sphere. Because after my studies, I wrote a book where I defended conventional forestry against environmentalist attacks. And as a result, I got a job uh, at the forestry interest group in Berlin. And well, I see a lot of parallels between political initiatives, which try to enforce organic farming and those that try to enforce what they would call ecological forestry. And uh, I've watched that for years, but now the humanitarian crisis in Sri Lanka prompted me to write this article. Also, I had just joined Young Voices, so it was a practical coincidence, so to speak, that I had the opportunity to do this. I, I'm grateful that we have the chance to talk about what's happening with Sri Lanka. And and for those who may not be aware, um, maybe they've seen some of the unrest. They've seen you know that there there's been some very widespread unrest. What was uh, what was it that set that unrest in motion? Well, I mean, the world is complex, so there's never just one reason. And uh, we're looking at an economical crisis which started in 2019. And of course, in the years ahead of that, there must have been some causes of that crisis. Uh, but what happened, what was important was that in April 2021, the government of Sri Lanka decided to ban the the import of non-organic fertilizer and of non-organic pesticides. And it was practically an overnight ban. And as a result, farming collapsed in Sri Lanka. Um, in the end, nearly one third of the total agricultural area went unused. Um, there were food there were food shortages, and Sri Lanka, which had been um, producing its own food for large to large degree, for example, was self-sufficient on rice, suddenly had to import food, and also they tended to export a lot of goods like tea, and these were also affected. So the economy was weakened even further, and also the currency was weakened even further. And by now, in 2022, we have shortages of no longer just food we also have shortages, shortages of gasoline of even paper for school exams and um well these these shortages these economic crises resulted in the unrest which we have seen uh, on television it resulted in well protests a government crackdown street fighting even arson you know yeah, it it has looked very chaotic, and and I have to wonder, um, the the move toward we're going to make farming totally organic. Whose idea was that? Who who originally brought that idea forward? Well, we're looking at an international group of experts and activists. It's like a, it's a big community who, well, they just lobby government governments for enforced organic farming. Um, and uh, they have a lot of good press because, well, it sounds very nice and environmentally friendly, and all those articles 
rarely mention that people starve, you know. And um, these activists and advisors, just to name a few that were active in Sri Lanka, we are looking at an Indian activist. Uh, her name is Vandana Shiva and a Swiss-born activist or expert called Hans Rudolf Herren, who is active in Washington, actually, with his Millennium Institute. And, well, they have been advising the, government, the Sri Lankan government for years, preparing some sort of shift towards organic farming. But, of course, you also have to put some blame on the government itself, because um, the decision to go about that total ban was an attempt to, to well to improve the trade balance because um, the currency was weakening and then they looked at the trade balance and they saw that they were importing a lot of fertilizer and pesticides and all of that and they thought well if we stop importing that we no longer have to pay our, our foreign currency reserves for for that you know and since these experts had told them that it would be possible to feed the people with organic farming, uh, they, then, you know, they believed that. And they, they thought they could actually save their, their foreign currency uh, reserves by taking this decision. And, of course, the opposite happened because, as I said, they had to import tea, they had to, uh, that, uh, they could not, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, they had to import food and they no longer could export that much tea. So, in the end, the whole decision backfired and uh, made the trade balance look even worse. I have to ask, Torben, what I'm seeing in, in Europe right now, particularly in the Netherlands, is this also related to uh, to imposed measures to, to change um, farming from using, you know, non-organic fertilizers to, to being more organic? Or is that is that a different situation there? Uh, it's related. It's a bit more indirect. Uh, the protests are not about enforced organic farming. Instead, they are about nitrogen uh, limits, you know, the European Union has imposed some nitrogen limits, which the Netherlands, which, well, the farming in the Netherlands is, is very intensive, you know, they produce food for large parts of Europe, actually, so they cannot maintain these nitrogen limits. And you will observe stuff like that a lot because in western countries you can't just go and just enforce 100 percent organic farming overnight um uh, that's because well we have more of a democracy so to speak you know it's um there are various interest groups like farmers associations and uh, i don't know the people who sell and distribute food um like supermarkets and um they also they also have a say in politics so unlike in developing countries where you just have to get some influence on some ruling family like in sri lanka for example it's much more complex in the west so what you will see here is either the move towards more organic farming will be made by using limits like the limits on nitrogen or there will be like a percentage-based target for it. The European Union has, this, Union has decided that in the future, 20% of the total uh, arable 
area or agrarian area in, in, in Europe, in the EU, should be organic. So they will not say 100% because, you know, there are other powers, other interest groups which are in the way of that, but it will be it will be more indirect and uh, more slower. Yes, more slow. Yeah, I noticed you point out in your article that uh, it's not a bad idea to to have organic farming. In fact, if if wealthy people want to pay more for organic farming as as a luxury, you say um, that's fine. But by forcing these farmers to go organic, um, it it caused a lot of heartache and a lot of problems. Are there other nations that are considering taking a similar approach to what Sri Lanka has taken? Uh, yeah, well, as I said, the European Union is going for 20%, which is not as bad as 100%, but it's still forcing people to do things to some degree. And um, it will also include, uh, result in increasing food prices in Europe. Um, but of course, you will not see as much, you will not see starvation or food shortages here because, well, we are talking about third world countries and they can just take more taxes, uh, print more money and throw it as a problem. So it's they will kick the can down the road instead of actually facing the consequences. Mm. So what's actually more comparable is if you look at um, Bhutan, for example, uh, or at the Indian state of Zikkim, which are also South Asian countries. Um, and in those countries, they also try to go organic, but not overnight. They also want 100%, but they took more time for it. And where well, you can kind of see the same results, just more stretched out in time. Uh, Bhutan wanted to be fully organic by 2020, and they didn't manage because they had to import too much non-organic food. And uh, eventually, they postponed the go the target to. 2035. Uh, and Zikkim, the Indian state, is also still importing a lot of non-organic food. So it doesn't work. And as long as you import organic food, well, you will pay for it, but you can prevent starvation, you know. Uh, as soon as you stop doing that or no longer can do that, well, your economy will collapse. There will be shortages and uh, unrest. All right, we are talking with Torben Halbe. He is a contributor for Young Voices based in Berlin, Germany. Torben, it's been wonderful to catch up with you. Where can people follow you on social media? Well, I'm on Twitter, just by my name, Torben Halbe. Um, and also, I recently joined the Berlin think tank, which is called Ego Institute. But unfortunately, you can not find us yet. We're still setting up the web page. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Austin Lamb to the program. Austin, I think this is our first time getting to talk with you. Uh, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us just a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, of course. Good to good to see you. Good to meet you, Brian. My name's Austin Lamb. I'm originally from Fargo, North Dakota, and then I did my undergrad at Boise State um, and it was 2016, which is probably when I started there, and that's probably a lot of the reason that I wanted to study political science in the first place. There was a lot of sparks flying that year, and I remember being very excited about Bernie Sanders, and so I hit the ground running with <laughs> activism, interning, political work. You know, I wanted to build things. I wanted to make change, and, you know, everything that a freshman wants to do. 
Um, and things really changed for me once I started taking political philosophy classes, in particular when I read Alexis de Tocqueville for the first time, which really blew my hair back. It, it just astounded me that somebody from hundreds of years ago from a different country could understand our time and our country better than I understood our country and our time. So I fell in love with the great thinkers. It's an itch that I'm continuing to scratch here at Boston College. And it helped me realize that politics is more than just business. It's more than administration. It's more than studying voting behavior. It's an entry point into all these great debates that uh, mankind has been having for thousands and thousands of years. What is justice? What is love? Um, they're really rich questions that we, I think we need to be able to talk about if we're going to make good decisions and run our politics well. Well, I'm, I've been enjoying an article that you wrote for AmericanMind.org, Behind the Declaration. And, and I think I was only made aware of this a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't realize this was the first time in 33 years that uh, Morning Edition on the 4th of July broke with its tradition of reading the Declaration of Independence in favor of doing a segment of what equality means and what it's meant in this document. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, was, uh, did that cause right, a stir would... or, or what? I was also very surprised to see that headline. And I know you had um, one of our other contributors on here to talk about it last episode. And I think I have a bit of a different take on it uh, than he did. I was also surprised to see that headline, but I, I listened to this piece, you know, and of course it's billed this way that they're breaking with tradition that we're not going to read the Declaration of Independence on, on Independence Day as is our tradition. We're going to talk about equality instead, but you actually listen to the piece and it is just about the most jingoistic, patriotic, rah-rah USA radio segment that I'd listened to a long while. It very much embraced America's founding principles and tradition and identified equality with it and talked about how different groups um, such as women and racial minorities have used the founders' doctrine of equality, You know, in particular the Declaration of Independence and, and Jefferson's powerful words there, in their own fights for equality. And so I guess I was surprised at how unsurprising the piece is. I mean, I suppose it's not all that that astonishing that state-run media would run a piece about how the country that they are in and where they produce their show is good. But what is surprising is this context that makes this use of clickbait necessary, that there is a significant <laughs> portion of NPR's audience that thinks that equality has nothing to do with the, with their nation's founding principles, that it might be even opposed to it. And... You know, I, I share that impulse um, a bit, the, not not their conclusions, which I think are, are are incorrect, but this desire to have the story you tell yourself about your country to not only be good, but to also be true. And so I sympathize with these people um, and who want to go back and try to figure out what the founders were about and whether maybe they, you know, weren't were talking out of the sides of their mouth when they said they were friends of equality, which it's a sympathetic view because they many of them were slaveholders. But I think the truth of the matter is that our founders were genuinely friends of equality um, that capitulated to necessity in order to found this nation and particularly on the issue of the slavery with the intention and the full understanding or expectation, I should say, that this was an institution that was dying and would wear out and that the principles that they founded this republic on would win out at the end of the day, which is arguably what happened during the Civil War. Um, 
I, I happen to but, be one of those people who believes that that uh, they were being very far-sighted in, in the way that they framed you know the Constitution, that there were things that at the time they could not deal with, there wasn't the political will to deal with, but they set the stage for those problems to be dealt with. Having said that though, mm-hmm. I'd like to I'd like to dig down a little bit more into to what do we mean when we say equality? I'm I just want to get kind of a baseline of understanding what did they mean by equality and and do we mean something different when we talk about equality in the context of modern day America? Right. And this is this is a fun question to talk about because everybody at least in the American context most people you'll talk to would say would say they love equality and that equality is something good and we should have more of it. But we have different understandings of what what equality means. Now, when the founders proclaimed that all men were created equal, they certainly didn't mean that everybody had the same amount of stuff at the present moment during their time, because that's just factually incorrect. That's a lie. You know, in addition to, you know, a racial caste system being present in the country at that time, there were just it's just pure fact that some people had more things than others. So it can't be their intention that, you know, equality is everybody having the same amount of stuff all the time. It's a shared moral equality. It's an equality in sharing certain unalienable rights, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think this is the basis for the American understanding of equality, at least that the founders had it. Now, there's another side of this, and I believe that a lot of people who are, are friends of the founders and their project of equality pay too little attention to, is that also when you're running a democratic republic, you need to pay attention to the actual raw economics, the, the actual distribution of goods in a nation that, that prides itself on a shared moral equality. At a certain point, people do have to have roughly the same amount of stuff roughly, the, roughly most of the time, right? You, you can't it would be against our principles, against um, you know this this morality that we share, at least to some extent, in the United States, for us to proclaim people to be equal, but to have them just be so fragrantly unequal. In fact, but this doesn't mean that we 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 need to re- redistribute all the goods, or we're failing our principles. I, th- I think I think far from that. One thing I want to kind of press you on a little bit there is. Um, I, I've heard people say, and I think this is this. I personally believe this is accurate. Um, even our poor in America, even the lowest income people, still have access to most of the creature comforts like air conditioning or microwaves or you know uh, Netflix and and Wi-Fi. They they have access to a lot of the things that uh, would have been unthinkable even for royalty just you know a couple of centuries earlier um, but there's still you know a great uh, inequality in terms of uh, what people do with the resources that they have in their lives who makes the decision as to to what is where, where that equilibrium is found it's a good question and I, th- I think to just dismiss the problem of relative inequality is very short-sighted and it doesn't really speak to what people the moral feelings, the very in, in, intense beliefs that people bring to the table when they're talking about inequality. You know, there's this attitude that a lot that I think a lot of conservatives take, which is, hey, we have it pretty good right now. So just, you know, be quiet, shut up, enjoy yourself. There's McDonald's. It's all a good time. But, you know, man does not live by bread alone. And I, th- I think if we don't, if we're not able to have conversations and a- address these very real concerns of 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 relative inequality, then we're not speaking to the problems that that that, that 
that people are facing. And we, we run the risk of alienating people from this tradition and you know, beginning to think of themselves as somewhere outside of it, which is not where we want to be at all. The the, the difference that I, that I see, and I'm I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you here, but is one person sees a person's very nice home or very nice car and thinks they don't deserve that because I don't have that. Another person sees it and thinks I want to have that too. So I'm going to apply myself and you know and work toward that. I think that the latter attitude is is more of a healthy one than than the the first one. Go ahead. I mean, if, if, if there's anything more, I, I, I like the idea of us being equal before the law. I like the idea of us, uh, you know, having equal access to the tools that can help us better ourselves. But sometimes I worry that uh, outcomes or, or where that equality is going to be enforced. And that's a concern. Austin, where can people contact you either via social media? Where, the, where can they follow your work? Sure. I'm at Twitter. I'm at lamb underscore Austin underscore. And I'll certainly be writing more for Young Voices. And I look forward to uh, seeing you and talking to you in the future. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Ben Cope to the program. Ben is a Young Voices contributor. He hails from London at this point. And Ben, tell us just a little bit about yourself, about who you are and what you do. Hi, Brian. It's, uh, it's great to be on the show. Um, I work for a strategic communications agency in London. Uh, we have uh, we have lots of clients in different sectors, do lots of different kinds of work for them. Um, but all our at some point, it, it, our work always comes across um, messaging. You know the stories you're, you, you're going to tell to to other people, and I think um, I think uh, that what we're going to be talking about today is a is a great example of, of of where that can go wrong. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at uh, your article. Penalizing the childless won't fix Britain's aging population, and and there's two things that I have to ask about. First of all, what what's uh, what needs to be fixed, or at least what what is the the challenge with Britain's aging population? Can you help me understand that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because I think um, a lot of people have the certainly in the West they have the assumption that there's there's too many people or there's also certainly going to be too many in the future. Um, so this this view is is quite counterintuitive to a lot of people. But essentially, it's it's the idea that um, for quite a few decades now in the UK, but you know also in a lot of Western countries like like America, um, our fertility rate so that's the sort of the number of children we have per per person has um, has gone below replacement, which means that um, sort of, well, slowly the, the population will will shrink. They're, they're, uh, at this point, most of the most of the population growth is driven by immigration. Um, but um, there are obviously um, you know, some people some people maybe don't don't um, don't think that's a great idea. And then whether it's sustainable in the future is is also is also questionable. So that that's the that's the sort of broad. Um, like challenge, I guess that that um, well, this this academic um, that I was um, that I was talking about in the article, Paul Morland, he's a demographer. He was um, he was responding to some new data that came out in the UK, and um, and yeah, he was trying to come up with some some solutions to to that problem. And what was the solution that he gave that uh, did not go over so well? <laughs> yes, well, he he gave a few, but the the two that really caught um, <laughs> caught, caught people's eye was he he. Um, he, he he suggested that um, if if families had um, had three children, they should receive a a telegram from the Queen, 
And, and the other one was that um, for people who don't have children, there should be a negative child benefit tax, which is essentially taxing the, taxing the childless. And um, yeah, as you said, neither of those um, went down particularly well. I mean, quite, quite a lot of the reaction probably couldn't say because there, there was quite a lot of sort of angry and, and, and bad language in the in the response but yeah the, it, it kicked up kicked up a lot of fuss and um, yeah so Ben I have to ask your reaction here was was the outrage that was generated was it justified or did did he have a point worth considering yeah it's it, it, it's interesting I, th- I think the the reaction the reaction was totally justified because the, his his suggestions were you know Bless him, I guess, but they, they were terrible. And, um, and you know, it, it's so as from a communication standpoint, terrible comms, you know, people, people are going to hate, hate this, but, um, but, but also just um, from a, you know, a, a effectiveness of policy standpoint, you know, they're, they're these kind of, uh, I guess, like carrots and stick um, policies to try and basically try and make people have more children have been, you know, shown not to work. Um, so yeah, I, I I thought it was a, you know, he, he's he's done a very he's responded trying to respond to a, a a real problem that that does need attention, but his his solutions leave a lot to be desired. Okay, and I know I know in the article you point out that hey, it's it's fine for him to bring this up, but it, he really wasn't winning over you know the the audience mm. with with his arguments. What are some of the suggestions? I, I know you put forth at least five different suggestions in your article of ways to to address that uh, that uh, aging population and the need for people to continue to have kids. Yeah, so I, I gave five reasons or oh, five five. Um five policy ideas and i think they all they all come under the banner of trying to create uh trying to create an environment where where people want to have children you know improving people's quality of life um making people making people happier i mean there, there, there's some there's some really interesting data coming out of japan at the moment which has, has some very low fertility rates which shows that in regions where, where people people are happier where um you know they do happy happiness surveys and they, they have higher happiness ratings in certain regions in those regions people have a lot more children so these um all, all these policy ideas were 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 engine sort of target target is around those so 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 one of them was was fixing the housing crisis so you know that's a it's a particular problem in the uk where we simply we, we haven't built enough houses for for decades and and funnily enough that now means we don't we don't have enough um but and, you know i think this is this is probably a, a problem in a problem in a lot of a lot of developed countries. I know you have the the, the Yimby movement um, uh, in America, um, particularly in sort of urban urban areas. Um, so that's a play on sort of the NIMBY um, NIMBY um, acronym. Um, and so yeah, the the idea that if, if if you have if you have more more houses, people can can you know have the security, the space. They 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 have the financial freedom of of of, of home ownership. They're they're more likely to have children. Okay, that makes sense. Talk to me about uh, flexible working. Do do you find that right now young people in Britain are having to choose between career and and family? It's it's certainly something that I, I, is is talked about a lot. You know, since since the pandemic, flexible working has, has you know risen up the agenda as, as something that I think a lot more people a lot more people want. Um, and I. I when, when people make the argument that um, you know, as, as I do in this piece, that flexible working is a is a, is a good idea if you want people to have more children, quite often by uh, this gets thrown back in your face by um, 
uh, people of a slightly older generation think, well, you know, we didn't have flexible working back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a problem back then. Um, you know, you, you get all the snowflake stuff. Um, but but, but I, th- I think it's, it, that's a historically naive, naive argument because, you know, for a couple of reasons. Like, firstly, a, a long time ago, uh, women didn't have access to contraception. So, that, you know, they, they, they weren't doing that, doing it by choice. Um, which is, you know, obviously a, a great a great thing we have we have now. But I, I think more recently, um, when when women did, started to have, you know, perhaps you know from the seventies and eighties onwards, you know, we're, tr- we're trying to to break into the workplace and, and you know move away from the sort of public private sphere um, way of thinking. They they you know they 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 sort of the whole double shift phenomenon that they they do a big big days big day at work where you know they probably face discrimination there and they you know wouldn't, wouldn't get on in in the world and then they come home and have to you know do all the all the childcare and, and you know funnily enough that, they, that that was seen as a pretty pretty poor deal um but you know they, they, this isn't just as you know this isn't just a just a thing for women as, as in, increasingly we're trying to trying to spread parental duties between both parents um this is something that you know both both men and and, and women would definitely would definitely benefit from and I noticed you mentioned affordable childcare. You mentioned social mobility. Mm. One that caught my eye, though, was climate. Talk to me about yeah. how, how climate anxiety plays into people's decision not to have kids. Yeah, and I think um, so the, the, the key thing here is, is, is that I think the young young people are a lot more scared about the future than um, a lot of people often often realize. And and you know, a lot of this is just the the information that we're we're being fed about what the future is going to look like. When you know, when the IPCC uh, launched their big big report last year on uh, you know, on 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 climate change, they called it a code red for humanity. Um, the UK Environmental Agency uh, launched a report a few months later saying that we had to adapt or die. Um, so you know, these are some really um, really sort of vivid. Um, uh, and, and you know, a lot, a lot with some really hard, sort of rigorous science behind them about what the what the future could look like. And you know, you've got if, if you're my age, you've got you've it's a, it's a very valid question to think. Well, if if, if things are if if my future is going to look like that, what's what's what if I had a child in you know so so many years time, what would what would their future look like? You know, is that is that a responsible thing to be doing? Um, you know, both on a sort of an emotional point of view for that for that person, but also if we're if we're trying to cut down on our, our carbon footprint to, to avoid this, you know, these apocalyptic scenarios, um, maybe that's something something we shouldn't be doing. And you know, this this is a out of all out of all my suggestions or, or, or issues to address. This is by far the hardest and the most challenging because you know climate change is, as we all know, a, a problem that doesn't have any easy answers. So I think you know governments really just need to be showing that, that or, or 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 to, to to look like they're they're actively engaging internationally, they're trying to solve the problem. But I, but I think that there does also need to be a comms job here. That you know, it, it's all very good to to to, to scare people into into action. We, we had this a lot during during COVID, and and to, to a large extent, it worked. People changed their behaviour because of of communication. But uh, people also changed their communication to to do things that to had adverse uh, consequences. Um, you know, during the pandemic, that might be, you know, epidemics of loneliness or, or, or other or other things like that. But but here it might be people don't have children. So I think there's a 
there's a job to be done here uh, to, to make people not feel so scared about the future. Okay, I'm going to stop you there because we are up against the clock. We are talking with Ben Cope. He is a Young Voices contributor. Ben, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Ben H. Cope. All right. Thank you. Th- thank you so much. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome Charlie Brandt, who is also a Young Voices contributor. And Charlie, since this is our first time meeting you, tell us about yourself. First off, thank you so much for having me today. I very much appreciate the opportunity. My name is Charlie Brandt. I'm a rising second year law student at the George Washington um, University Law School. Um, I'm also a proud member of the Federalist Society, and I am passionate about federalism, separation of powers, and limited government. Wonderful. Now, we're going to talk about something that uh, I hear come up often in the news, but I can't say, oh, yes, I'm very fluent uh, when it comes to the filibuster. But uh, you have a wonderful piece written for AmericanThinker.com about safeguarding the filibuster. And I do hear some talk these days about, well, it's time to do away with the filibuster. First of all, give us some background on what it is and why was it included as part of the lawmaking process? Sure. So the Senate filibuster is um, the 22nd rule of the Senate, Senate Rule 22. And it currently provides that 60 votes are necessary to invoke what is called cloture, essentially a formal motion that wraps up debate on a bill and puts it on the conveyor belt uh, to to a vote on the merits, yes or no. Um, In the 1970s, the cloture threshold was actually 67 senators, so two thirds of that body that was lowered to make it less onerous. Uh, in, I believe, uh, the mid-1970s, so now it's at 60 votes. Um, Throughout most of our history, the Senate actually had no formal means by which to end debate. Early on in our nation's history, at the behest of Vice President Aaron Burr, uh, the United States Senate ditched what was called the previous motion question, which allowed senators to bring something, uh, uh, allowed, excuse me, a, a, a simple majority so that's 50% plus one to end debate on a bill and, and force a vote on passage. Uh, at the behest of Vice President Aaron Burr, early on in our nation's history in the early 1800s, that motion was ditched, unlike in the House of Representatives where it stayed on the rule book. And ever since, we've had unlimited debate. Well, really, only until 1917, where under the pressure of Woodrow Wilson, who wanted to pass a bill that allow would allow commercial vessels to arm themselves, uh, to defend themselves in World War I. He used his bully pulpit to put tremendous pressure on Senate Republicans. And ultimately, uh, uh, cloture was, um, was put in Senate rules. And, and for the first time in, I believe, 1919, cloture was invoked on the Treaty of Versailles. And as we know, that was not passed. But since, uh, since so really for about 100, 110 years, we've had this, this cloture motion though we've gone from 67 votes to, to, to end debate on a bill to now 60 votes to end on a bill, we've had this means to, to, to stop a bill before passage unless 
a supermajority of senators sign on to it. So that's currently three-fifths at 60. It was once at two-thirds being 67. Really what it does is it forces a, a, a supermajority of the states to assent to revolutionary legislation. Talk to me a little bit about why it's so important to some legislators to get rid of this. I, my my layman's eyes are like, well, they just want to make it easier to pass whatever it is they want to pass. I'm not so sure I want it to be that easy for them. I want them to, to have to really fight their way to get what they want, because otherwise it's like they're, they're being handed a blank check. Well, you know who else felt the exact same way? The framers of the United States Constitution. Oh, well, then I'm in good company. <laughs> uh, it was in excess of legislation that our framers most feared. And for that reason, they instituted a government that had a bicameral legislator. Uh, that is two houses, the House and the Senate. They were going to be elected differently. They were going to have different constituencies, the Senate being the states and the House of Representatives being congressional districts, which were much smaller in size. Um, you'd be right that that there is a tendency in modern politics for uh, you know politicians to claim, my priorities are the most important priorities to have ever existed and to have uh, to, to, that will ever have existed. And as such, uh, we need to nuke institutional norms and pass this to save the world, uh, pass this to save abortion rights, pass this to save uh, uh, to save lives and schools from gun violence, pass this to 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 end the suppression of votes in Georgia and Texas and Arizona and the like. In truth, there is no carve out for the filibuster. Uh, it would just. Uh, that is just a means of saying, oh, well, really, this is really important to pass, so we need to nuke rules to do it. Well, that gives the political capital to, to the opposition next time they're in power to say, oh, well, hey, uh, you nuke the filibuster for abortion. You nuke the filibuster for uh, gun safety. You nuke the filibuster for, I don't know, D.C. or Puerto Rican statehood. The list goes on and on. We're going to now nuke it to pass nationwide right to work laws, to restrict abortion on the nationwide level, um, and to, uh, to, to secure the Southern border. I mean, imagine the screams uh, out of the Demo from the democratic side of the aisle that would result from such a thing. Clearly these, uh, these, these declarations that we nuke the filibuster are somewhat myopic in that they fail to grapple with the fact that the Democrats made quite prolific use of the filibuster uh, over the course of the Trump presidency, hundreds of times to stop legislation that they did not want to, to come into law. Um, and so by keeping the filibuster on the books, they, uh, they, they have an insurance policy of sorts that they will have at least some power to stop uh, what they deem government excesses next time the opposition uh, is at the helm of government. You know, I could see it being a very good um, uh, moderating factor. Right now, it feels like the pendulum, when when, uh, when one party takes control to the other party taking control, that pendulum is swinging harder and more violently than I can remember in, you know, 30 plus years of really paying attention to this. So, I like seeing tools like this that that, that can kind of slow that tendency to just, you know, pedal to the floor, let's get everything we can. I, I want to. I want deliberation to take place, especially in a deliberative body like the Senate. Exactly right. And and Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Papers actually charged the Senate uh, with curbing um, 
I believe, intemperate resolutions, he called it. It's supposed to be a place where the issues are deliberated, where things are really thought through, where a super majority consensus is established before enacting revolutionary change. This instills comedy in our system of governance. It ensures that when we're an, about to enact on, on, on social revolution, the minority is offered a say. The, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, for instance, surmounted uh, uh, many hours of Southern uh, Democrats filibusters. And by working so hard to, to, to establish a supermajority consensus, it legitimized the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by passing it with, with massive majorities in the House and the Senate before sending it to President Johnson's desk to sign. Uh, the South was forced to grapple with the legitimating force of the supermajority, which, which in my view, uh, forced it to, to dismantle Jim Crow much faster than it may have otherwise. So let's, uh, we've got about a minute and a half left here. If people want to, to better understand the filibuster, why the, the founders incorporated it as the mechanism that they did, what's a good resource to study? I mean, look, history books are going to tell us what people think about it, but um, are, are, there, uh, are there founding documents? I mean, the, the Federalist Papers, to, for instance, that, that might give us an idea of, of why they, they thought this was a good tool to, to put in place? Yes, absolutely. The Federalist Papers talk about you know, the various functions and structures of our government, what our founding fathers had in mind by forming the government the way they did. So Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers does talk about the Senate. Um, he contrasts it from the House of Representatives, and he sheds light upon its, its functions. It's interesting that you invoke the framers, because it's not so much that, that the framers uh, gave birth to the filibuster, but they certainly gave birth to the United States Senate. And the filibuster allows the Senate to more faithfully uh, accomplish its constitutional functions and to serve as the stabilizing deliberative saucer of sorts uh, in our national politics. So I would recommend that viewers, uh, listeners, turn to the Federalist Papers but also, you know, look at some of the famous filibusters that have been had in the Senate uh, over the course of our history. And, and even the ones that, that were, were used to, to stop civil rights legislation. Um, it, it's interesting to look at, at, at that deliberative process and the positive results those filibusters gave to us, both in the form of, of, of um, well, really, uh, legitimizing effect on, on, on legislation. Okay, we have been talking with Charlie Brandt. He is a Young Voices contributor. Where can people find you on social media? Um, you can find me on Twitter. I believe it's Charlie Brandt 44. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have a great day.